Good day and welcome to For the Love of Pets. This is Dr. Donald Shreves, owner and operator of the Pottsgrove Animal Hospital, here to talk to you today about some great information to help you understand some things about your pets. So stick with us. I'll be back in a few minutes and we're going to talk about some very interesting stuff today. So we'll see you in a few. Good day and welcome back to For the Love of Pets. Again, this is Dr. Donald Shreves, owner and operator of the Pottsgrove Animal Hospital in beautiful, lovely Pottstown, Pennsylvania. Um, um, welcome back to all my previous listeners. And if you're a new listener, welcome as well. I hope you'll look at some of our other podcasts and learn some great information uh, to help you make sure that you keep your pets healthy and safe and learn a little bit about what you need to do to keep them healthy and safe. So today we're going to talk about some endocrine disease disorders. Um, these are things that could happen to your pet. Hopefully they never do. But we're going to talk about symptoms. We're going to talk about ways to look at them to determine, you know, could this be possibly be happening to your pet? And then what do you need to do about it? And what can your, your doctor, your veterinarian help you do about it to help you keep your pet healthy and living a good and normal life? Now, endocrine disorders are disorders of the hormonal systems, essentially, okay? Um, and there's a lot of endocrine diseases. We're going to talk about some of the more common ones and one that's not quite so common, um, but we're going to talk about the ones that we tend to see a lot. Uh, among the things we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about hypothyroidism and its reverse hyperthyroidism. We're going to talk about diabetes mellitus. We're going to talk about a much more rare form of diabetes called diabetes insipidus. Um, we're going to talk about Cushing's disease. And it's exact opposite, which again is something not too common, Addisonian disease. So these are the topics we're going to cover today. And we're going to see if we can give you a little education to understand the symptoms of these diseases and um, what can be done to help your pet should, unfortunately, they should come down with one of these diseases. I do apologize if you hear in the background some barking. That's my youngest uh, pug, Tulip. Uh, she's a little bit of a loudmouth. She's a love, and I love her very much, but she can be a bit on the noisy side when she wants to be. So I do apologize if you hear that. All right, so endocrine disorders. The first one we're going to talk about are the two most common disorders in the thyroid of animals. The thyroid gland is a gland that controls metabolism. So your thyroid helps to keep your metabolism running, keep your energy up, and keep you feeling better. And unfortunately, diseases of the thyroid can happen. And the two most common ones we see are hypothyroidism, which is low thyroid, which we primarily see in dogs, and it's also seen in humans, and hyperthyroidism, which is primarily seen in cats. I will say in the 23 years I've been doing this, I have seen two confirmed cases of hyperthyroidism in dogs. I don't think I've ever seen a confirmed hypothyroidism in cats. Um, so it can happen in dogs that they can become elevated thyroid, but it's extremely rare. Hypo is by far the most common. Hypothyroidism also happens in people. So what happens when your animal becomes hypothyroid? Hypothyroidism is a decrease in thyroid hormone production. So your thyroid stops producing adequate levels of thyroid hormone. And why does this happen? 
We don't know. Unfortunately, there's a lot of potential possibilities and a lot of theories out there, but not one confirmed reason why a dog's thyroid gland kind of scars in and stops producing levels of thyroid hormone adequate to maintain metabolism. So when they become hypothyroid, your dog will start to get lazy, will start to get overweight. Um, even in the face of trying to diet them and feed them less or feed them you know, correct amounts of diets, they will still gain weight, um, have, very, have decreased energy. Oftentimes you'll get some hair um, loss, okay? So um, sleeping more. So in these type of cases, um, first thing we have to do is diagnose whether the animal is truly hypothyroid. Um, you know, just because your animal is overweight doesn't necessarily mean he's hypothyroid. But if your animal is overweight, hypothyroidism definitely should be considered. So this disease is easy to diagnose with blood work levels, but it's not always cut and dry. Most times it is, but not always. You draw the blood, you send it out, they measure the thyroid levels, and if it's low, you have a hypothyroid dog, especially if it goes along with the symptoms that the dog is overweight, the dog has some bad skin, the dog is lazy or unenergetic. But I have seen some cases where the thyroid comes back normal. Now, normal in that is at the very low end of normal in the blood range. So the range could be from 1 to 4 is normal, and the dog is sitting at 1.0, 1.1. Technically, normal levels. But there is another hormone that is produced. It's called the thyroid stimulating hormone, or TSH. And this is produced by the pituitary gland. So what this does is the pituitary gland monitors the hormonal levels within the bloodstream for multiple different hormones. And thyroid hormone is one of them. So when the thyroid hormone starts to get low, the pituitary releases TSH into the system, which then goes to the thyroid, tells the thyroid, hey, we need some thyroid hormone. The thyroid produces enough thyroid hormone. When the levels get adequate enough, the levels tell the pituitary gland, okay, we're good. The pituitary gland says, okay, stops producing TSH, and then the thyroid stops producing thyroid hormone because our levels are good. Now, in a hypothyroid dog, there isn't enough production. So the pituitary is constantly saying, we need more, we need more, we need more, but we're not getting enough to get into the normal level. So we keep saying, we need more, we need more, we need more. But what can sometimes happen is there can be just enough production in the thyroid gland to get us to adequate levels, or at least low end of normal levels. So the pituitary gland is up in the brain screaming, I need more thyroid, I need more thyroid, I need more thyroid. And the thyroid gland is producing all it possibly can, and it gets it just into the normal range. But the minute the thyroid says, stop saying I need more, the levels drop and the thyroid starts screaming, or the pituitary starts screaming again. So... In these cases, it is always good to measure the thyroid-stimulating hormone in the blood. Because if you have a low normal thyroid hormone, or T4 level, and you have a high TSH level, you've got a hypothyroid dog. Now, what do you do with a hypothyroid dog? The good thing is this is easy to treat. We simply put them on thyroid medication and supplement what their body is no longer producing anymore. 
Most animals do very well in the thyroid hormone. They will eventually start losing weight. They will eventually um, get more active. Um, their skin will improve. It is a forever medicine. Once they're put on it, they're on it for life. But once they're on it, things do really, really well for them. Obviously, you have to monitor the thyroid levels so that you don't overshoot them. And also to make sure that you are getting them into the normal range. So every six months to a year, blood work should be run. After the initial first month, I always run one blood work. And then six months to a year if numbers are good. So that is hypothyroid in dogs. I said I've never seen a case of hypothyroid in cats, though I'm sure they do exist. Um, so the opposite of that is hyperthyroid, or high levels of thyroid hormone. And this is primarily a cat disease, though as I said earlier, I have seen two confirmed cases of it in dogs. Hyperthyroidism in cats is usually caused by a tumor within the thyroid gland. So the thyroid gland starts producing, has this tumor that starts producing thyroid hormone. And again, just like in the dog, you have the TSH levels and the pituitary gland up in the brain. But when the levels are getting high, the, the pituitary is sitting there screaming, stop, stop, stop. And the tumor in the thyroid gland is basically going, yeah, right. Um, because it's just going to keep producing it. It keeps ignoring the orders of the pituitary gland. And that's how a cat becomes hyperthyroid. Now, with a hypothyroid, we said they got lazy and overweight. Um, cats that become hyperthyroid tend to drink a lot, are ravenously hungry, lose weight, and hyperactive. Now, not every disease reads the textbook, so they don't always show all of these symptoms. The excessive drinking and the weight loss tend to be the two biggest ones, um, which can also be symptoms of other diseases, such as diabetes. Um, so you have to run blood work to really determine if you have a hyperthyroid cat. It does tend to be more in older cats, okay, versus younger cats. So if you have a young cat that's drinking excessively, I'd probably lean more towards thinking about diabetes. If you have an older cat that's drinking excessively, hyperthyroid would probably top my possibility list. Though you always have to keep the, both of them on the list until you have the blood results. So... Um, when your cat is hyperthyroid, as I said, they drink a lot and they eat a lot. But if the hyperthyroidism goes on long enough without being controlled, then unfortunately it can swing the other way and their appetites decrease and they get very lethargic because their body is just being eaten away by their metabolism. And as we said, thyroid controls metabolism. So when you have high thyroid levels, you have high metabolism and they kind of just waste away. So you really want to control this. You really want to treat this disease if and when you find it. And there's a couple different ways to treat the disease. Um, the most common one is with medicine. And it's a medication called methimazole. Um, methimazole, what it does is it traps the excessive thyroid hormone being produced so that it's not bodily ready to be used by the, the system. Um, and that's how we control it. Now, it comes in a pill form does also come in, in transdermal gels, which is what we tend to use at my practice because I tend to find it easier and I get better owner compliance when they only got to rub a little gel on their cat's ear versus having to shove a pill down their throat every day. Because, um, of course, you know, pilling cats is just the easiest thing in the world. Denote the sarcasm there. Um, so the transdermal gel works better, I tend to find. You put them on the medication after you've run blood work. Blood work's the way you diagnose it. 
You put them on the medicines, you repeat blood work a month later. If levels are in normal range, then you stay at that dose. If not, if they're too low, you adjust down. If they're still too high, you adjust up. Some cats need twice a day medicine, some need once. It varies from cat to cat, so it's impossible to predict how well they're going to absorb the medicine, how well they're going to process the medicine. Now, that is the most common way of treating hyperthyroidism. Um, you can also combine that with some dietary changes. Uh, primarily, there is a, a diet out there. It's made by Hills. It's called YD. And it's a diet that is very low in iodine. Iodine is a key component of thyroid hormone. So without uh, high levels of iodine, your body simply can't make high levels of thyroid hormone. Um, so that's how the diet works. Now, the diet will work in some cases by itself, sometimes in combination with methimazole. Now, what if you have multiple cats and only one is hyperthyroid and the rest are not? What you simply need to do is supplement some regular food to the other cats. That helps to get them adequate levels of iodine in their diet. Um, or simply don't do the diet and go with the medication. Um, beyond that, there are some surgical treatments to uh, deal with hyperthyroidism. Uh, one, you can get a thyroidectomy. And it could be a unilateral or bilateral thyroidectomy, depending on where the tumors are. Now, you need to have a doctor who knows how to do this, because there is another gland called the parathyroid gland that's part of the thyroid. And you do need to maintain that within the uh, body. So you have to kind of take out the thyroid and leave the parathyroid, because that controls other parts of the body and other parts of metabolism. So you need to have a doctor who's done the surgery, who knows what they're doing. The other option is radio, uh, act, radio cat or radio uh, act, active iodine treatment. This is done in select places where they actually inject your cat with a radioactive iodine. As I said, iodine is a very um, key component for making thyroid hormone. So when you use a radioactive iodine, when it gets into the thyroid gland, and you combine that with some radiation treatment, you actually can destroy a lot of the thyroid-producing cells in the tumor. And thus, you can get your cat back to a normal um, thyroid condition. Downside with RadioCat, unfortunately, is that it lasts only a certain amount of time. I think they usually say about five to six years from treatment um, before the potential of the tumor could start reproducing hyperthyroid. So if your cat is a younger cat that develops hyperthyroid at like 10 years of age, there is always a potential. You may look at 15 years of age to either have to do it again or put them on the medications. So that is the one downside. The other downside to Radio Cat is it is expensive. Uh, I think at last I heard it was somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000 for a treatment. Uh, don't quote me on that, but that's about what it was last I heard about it. So those are the way to treat a hyperthyroid cat. So it is a treatable disease. It's not um, something that you want to let go. So if you start to see your cat drinking a lot, losing weight, um, very ravenously hungry, you want to get some blood work done um, to find out what's going on. All right, so that's hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism. We're going to be back after this break, and we're going to talk about a couple other diseases that affect both dogs and cats. So I'll see you in a few. All right, good day, and welcome back to For the Love of Pets. I hope you enjoyed the first part of our lecture today about endocrine diseases, and we talked about hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism. So now we're going to talk about a 
very important endocrine disease, and this is one I could probably spend an entire podcast on by myself. So I'm going to kind of scratch the surface a little bit and talk to you about some of the basics. But um, down the road, we may do even a full podcast just on this disease because, unfortunately, it's so common. And unfortunately, there's a lot of different ways to treat it, a lot of different opinions on different doctors on how to treat it. And I'm not saying any way is right. I have my way. Another doctor may have a different way. And both of them may work. Um, and I'm not saying one way is right or other. It really depends on the doctor. But make sure you're comfortable with the way your doctor treats this disease. And what disease am I talking about? I'm talking about diabetes mellitus. Diabetes mellitus is what we all think about when we think about diabetes. It's where your animal, unfortunately, does not produce enough insulin within its body. And that is truly what diabetes is. Diabetes, we always think about high blood sugar. Well, the reason you have high blood sugar is because you're not producing enough insulin. And insulin is produced by what we call the endocrine pancreas. Um, and what its job in the body is to kind of act like a key to unlock the cell membranes and allow sugar to pass out of the blood and into the body cells where it can then be broken down and metabolized for energy. So when you eat, when you sit down, you have a meal. And that food goes into your stomach. That food is broken down by digestive enzymes and stomach acid and then goes into the intestine where it's digested even more and eventually absorbed into your bloodstream. So that sugar you're eating and those potato chips, or mashed potatoes or bread or whatever else that you might be having that's sugary goes into your bloodstream. And then insulin kind of opens the door and says, hey, come on in, where the sugar then gets broken down and made into energy for your body. But when you don't have enough insulin within your body, then, unfortunately, what happens is that sugar simply stays in the bloodstream. Your body cannot utilize it for energy, and it eventually is filtered out by the kidneys and excreted in the urine. So essentially, your body is starting to starve because it's not getting enough sugar. So what do you do? Well, the body, first of all, switches over to different types of metabolism, such as breaking down proteins and breaking down fats. The problem with this metabolism is a byproduct called ketones, which unfortunately can cause a whole bunch of other problems. And again, I'll probably get into this more when I do a specific one on diabetes, but right now we're just going to say that we want to get the body back onto sugar metabolism. The other concern is that there are certain organs in the body that must have sugar, can only survive on sugar. The biggest one, of course, is the brain. The brain must have sugar and can live on nothing else. So we need to get the body back onto sugar metabolism. And how do we do that? Well, in animals, we do that um, with two things. One, dietary changes, and two, insulin supplementation. So dietary changes. This is, again, my personal recommendations. I've had very good success with these recommendations. Other doctors may disagree with these recommendations, and they are certainly entitled to the way they do it if it works for them and their animals and their patients. This is what works for me. My first recommendation is I try to get the animal off of a carbohydrate diet. And most of the time, we feed our animals dry food, and most dry food... Um, unfortunately, is about 25% carbohydrates. That's how they make it dry and crunchy. The problem is, is carbohydrates are processed directly into sugar. So when your body breaks down carbs, it forms sugar. So by lessening carbohydrate intake, you lessen sugar intake. 
It's the same idea as when your doctor, if you become diabetic, tells you to stay away from white bread, white rice, white mashed potatoes, but to rather eat whole wheat, um, sweet potatoes, things that are not hot, that are not as high in carbohydrates because you don't have a processed carbohydrate grain, okay? So in this case, we switch them over to a wet food diet, and it can be any kind of wet food. I don't care what brand, I don't care what flavor, I don't care if it's a puppy, an adult, or a senior type of diet. I just want them on a wet food. Wet foods have a high protein, high fat content, low carbohydrate content, and that's a key. So, that's our first step in treating diabetes. Our second step in treating diabetes is insulin supplementation. Now, the insulin I tend to use is one called Vetsilin. It is made specifically for animals, and it's a pork-based insulin. We know that dog and cat insulin and pork insulin are fairly similar, so it works much better versus human insulin and dog and cat insulin. They can be different. Um, I've also used a PZI insulin in cats. I've worked with that very well. The unfortunate thing with PZI insulin has become so unbelievably expensive that we've started to use more of Vetsilin with our cats and dogs, because it's not as expensive for the owners, especially with the dogs when you might ha have them getting 20 or 25 units a day. Cats usually only end up like two to five units. Um, a couple I've had on a little higher, but dogs, so I've had some dogs that are on 20 units twice a day because they're so big and they need to be controlled. Um, insulin can be once a day, insulin can be twice a day, given via injection into their system to supplement what their body is no longer producing. Um, then we start monitoring blood sugars. Now, again, different ways to do this. Some doctors like to do a blood sugar curve where they hospitalize the patient, give them the insulin, monitor their sugars through the day. Uh, I don't do that. The reason why, uh, in some lectures I attended years ago from some endocrine specialists, one of the things they said about that is if you have an animal in hospital, a lot of times, one, they don't eat like they would at home. So, unfortunately, it's not going to give you an adequate look at their sugars and their metabolism because they're not eating half the time. And then you're watching a curve that's, you know, being affected by decreased appetite and increased stress. So what they recommended is starting out as a once a week uh, blood sugar check. So I have my patients come in once a week, approximately eight hours post giving the insulin, which has been documented as the peak time of the effect of the insulin once it's given. So if you give it at 8 in the morning, I'm checking the blood sugar at 4 in the afternoon. Now, some owners like to check blood sugar at home. That's fine. The problem is, is that most human meters do not read animal blood very well. So you really need to use one specifically made for animal blood, which is the AlphaTrack 2. So that's the one you really want to use. It's not the cheapest meter out there, and the strips are not extremely cheap either, but it's your best way to monitor your patient's blood if you want to do it at home. Otherwise, I come in once a week when we first start, and I check their blood sugar, and we adjust their dosage from there. The dosage originally calculated for their weight, and then it's adjusted by their numbers and by their response in how the symptoms are resolving. Symptoms include excessive drinking, ravenous appetite, weight loss, excessive urination, um, those are some of the big ones that we see um, that point us in the direction of diabetes. Blood work confirms it. 
You also want to make sure blood work confirmed, hopefully that the kidneys and other organ systems have not been affected by diabetes. And then you start the insulin, the dietary changes, and hope that you can balance them out. And in most cases, you can. Uh, I do tend to find it takes between four and six weeks to get them completely balanced out. But once you've got them at a good number, then you can start checking them once a month or so to make sure that they're still doing well. And if there's any concerns or problems, then you uh, check them more frequently. Obviously, you don't want them to become hypoglycemic. You don't want them to crash them out too low because that's even more dangerous than being too high. So you have to monitor them carefully until you get them balanced. Um, so that is a kind of a general overview of diabetes mellitus. Um, so again, it's something that's fairly common. We see it a lot. Uh, we will probably do a little bit more of a podcast on its own about diabetes because it is a very, very complicated and very, very um, fascinating and intricate topic. Now, there is another type of diabetes. Now, this is not common. I've probably seen two to three cases of this in 23 years, but it does exist and it's called diabetes insipidus. And this is a disease that kind of mimics diabetes mellitus in that you get excessive drinking and excessive urination. Um, but the reason that this happens in these cases has nothing to do with insulin. It has to do with the deficiency of a hormone uh, produced called an antidiuretic hormone. Antidiuretic hormone is produced by the pituitary gland, and for some reason it stops producing adequate levels. The other possibility is that the kidney itself is, doesn't respond to the antidiuretic hormone properly. So thus what's happening is that these animals cannot concentrate their urine. And because they can't concentrate their urine, the water is just coming out of them. They're peeing all the time. And because they're peeing all the time, they're drinking all the time. And that's what we call diabetes insipidus. Now, it's not a common disease. I've maybe seen three or four confirmed cases over the years. Um, so it is always a possibility when you have an animal that's PUPD, especially in a young animal. Um, because this does tend to be something they're born with or that happens early in life, whereas diabetes mellitus is something that happens uh, more later in life. So how do you diagnose diabetes insipidus? It is a difficult disease to diagnose. Uh, one thing you do not do is you do not do a water deprivation test because it's extremely dangerous in these type of patients, so you want to stay away from that test. So if you have a dog that's PUPD and your doctor recommends a water deprivation test, be very, very cautious because <coughs> unfortunately it can harm your animal. Usually... Um, a lot of times you treat them with a medication called uh, vasopressin, which is kind of a synthetic version of the diuretic hormone. And if they respond, if their drinking lessens, if their urine concentrates, then most likely um, that's what you're dealing with. Unfortunately, if they're on medication, you have to put them on the vasopressin. They're on it for life. It is a lifelong treatment. It's not something they will ever come off of. Again, though, luckily, it's not a common disease compared, compared to diabetes mellitus, which unfortunately is a much more common disease. All right, so those are the two diabetes. Um, we're going to take a break here, and I'll be back in a few minutes, and we're going to talk about one last pair of diseases that are kind of opposites of each other, one that is common, the other not so common. Be back in a few. All right, welcome back to For the Love of Pets. Again, I'm Dr. Donald Shreves of the Potsgrove Animal Hospital, and this is the third part of our endocrine 
uh, discussion today about endocrine diseases that we may see in your animals. Um, and the third one we're going to talk about is kind of a pairing. Uh, the first half of it is called Cushing's disease or hyperadrenocorticism. And the other half is Addison's disease, which is hypoadrenocorticism. So what are these diseases? Well, Cushing's disease by far is the most common of the two. Uh, I, for every 10 cases of Cushing's, or 20 cases of Cushing's, I might see one Addison case. I don't even think it's that frequent, I'll be honest. Um, I've probably seen maybe five or six cases of Addison's disease over the years. Um, though the mo most recent one was only about six months ago. But Cushing's disease is by far a more common disease. So Cushing's disease is a disease of one of two glands, either the pituitary gland or the adrenal gland. Now, the pituitary gland is a gland present up in your brain that controls a lot of your hormones and hormonal levels within your blood. And it does that by telling the body how, when to produce hormones and when to stop producing hormones. And in the case of Cushing's disease, what happens is that you can get a tumor up in your pituitary gland. Now, the pituitary gland actually has three common layers to it. The pars externa, the pars intermedias, and the pars internus, if I remember correctly, in my anatomy classes. Um, but, and those are going to be important in just a couple minutes. But the tumor happens in the pituitary gland. So in a normal case of your pituitary adrenal axis, as we call it, the pituitary gland says, I need you to produce me some cortisol. Says that to the adrenal gland. Adrenal gland says, okay, starts making cortisol. And then once there's an adequate level of cortisol, the pituitary gland says, okay, we've got enough, stop. Kind of like it does with the thyroid. And the adrenal gland says, okay, um, I'll stop producing it. But if you have a tumor in the pituitary gland, it keeps saying, I want more, I want more, I want more, I want more. And you've got your poor adrenal gland looking at them going, isn't it enough, isn't it enough? And it's going, no, I need more, I need more, I need more. Because the tumor in the pituitary gland has kind of made it go crazy. So a little cray-cray. <laughs> so um, the other way you can get Cushing's disease is if you get a tumor in the adrenal gland. So what happens then is that the adrenal gland starts producing large levels of cortisol. And the pituitary gland is up in the brain screaming, stop, 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 stop. We got way too much. Hold on. And the adrenal gland is going, yeah. Mm. But anyway, <laughs> um, because it has a tumor in it. So it's producing these large levels. So either way, you're getting large production of cortisol. And cortisol is like an endogenous steroid. So it's like you, if you ever had your animal put on prednisone, they drink a lot, they pee a lot, uh, they're hungry all the time. That's kind of what cortisol does. A lot of times you'll also see them having what we call a pot-bellied appearance. You can certainly have alopecia and hair problems. Um, so a lot of things that you will see in severe enough cases, you could get a, a secondary problem called calcinosis cutis, where calcium deposits actually start to happen within the skin. Um, so... That is Cushing's disease. Now, how do you diagnose it? It's usually diagnosed in twofold. One, you do a basic blood work profile, and you'll see a, an elevated level of what we call alkaline phosphatase, which is a specific enzyme in the blood that is an indicator of Cushing's. So if you have a high level of alkaline phosphatase and your dog has not been on any kind of steroid in the recent past, see if it's been on prednisone, alkaline phosphatase is going to go up. So you have to know 
you have to have that history of no steroids being taken by your animal before you can say, oh, this might be Cushing's. And it's not definitively Cushing's because the alkaline phosphatase is elevated. Um, that's why you got to do a second test. And there's a couple other ones out there. My personal preference is what we call the low-dose dexamethasone suppression test, which is a simple blood test. It takes about eight hours to do, however, where you take a blood sample, and then you administer a drug called dexamethasone. And what dexamethasone will do is suppress the production of cortisol in a normal pituitary adrenal axis. So if your dog is not Cushing's, when we take a blood sample at four hours, we're going to see a decrease in the cortisol. And at eight hours, we'll still see a decrease in the cortisol. But in a cushionoid dog, at four hours, you might have a decrease. But at eight hours, it's going to be bouncing back. It's going to be elevated again. In which case, you can say, okay, we have a Cushing's dog here. So it doesn't differentiate between pituitary or adrenal. So then you have to look at the medications and decide what to treat it with. And over time, there's been primarily three medications that have been used. First one is a drug called selegaline. Now, selegaline is useful in about 20% of the pituitary cases. And you remember a few minutes ago when I said there were three layers to the pituitary gland. Well, selegaline works if the tumor is in the middle layer, the pars intermedialis, okay? If the tumor develops in that layer of the pituitary, selegaline will affect it and suppress it. Now, how often does that happen? 20% of the time. So 20% of pituitary tumors, the pituitary-dependent Cushing's disease, selegaline will work. The other 80% of pituitary, it won't do anything. And if it's an adrenal tumor, it won't do anything. So then the second drug we used to use is a drug called lysadrin or midotame. Now, lysadrin kind of goes in and it burns out the adrenal gland. So that even if it's a pituitary dependent, and it could be up there screaming, I need more, I need more. If the, uh, cord if the adrenal gland is burned out by the midotane, then it can't produce it. The problem is midotane can be very dangerous, and it must be monitored extremely carefully in the dog. You have to check their levels. You have to do what they call ACTH stimulation tests because you don't want to burn out so much of the adrenal gland that they can't produce enough cortisol to be normal. The other problem is that there's a second part to the adrenal gland that produces what we call mineral corticoids, okay? Adrenal gland produces two types of proteins, corticosteroids, which is your cortisol, and mineral corticoids. And midotane burns out both, Okay. So you may end up with a dog that cannot produce either one or cannot produce enough in adequate levels. That is uh, the, one of the dangers of midotane and other drugs too. Um, and in which case then you end up with a dog that is Addisonian, which is the exact opposite of Cushing's. Then they need to be on other medications like prednisone and um, Procortin-V for the rest of their life because you have to supplement what their body can't produce anymore because of the midotane. Midotane can get severe enough. It's not monitored carefully. Dogs have, can and have died from midotane. So it's not a drug I prefer to use. Um, it scares me a little bit. I will be freely honest. I know a lot of vets out there that it scares. So the third medication, and this is the one I typically use, is one called trilostane. And trilostane works to suppress the adrenal gland as well. Um, and in some cases, trilostane can be dangerous, and you'd still have to be very, very careful with trilostane. It's not just put them on trilostane and that's it. 
you have to monitor them. You have to make sure you're adequately suppressing the Cushing's disease without completely burning out their adrenal gland. But I tend to find it's less dangerous than meditating personally. And again, there are doctors out there that may disagree with me on that, and they are certainly entitled to their opinion. I know there are doctors out there that love using lysodrine, and that's certainly fine too. Um, my personal opinion, I prefer trilostane in most cases. I tend to find it much safer, and I've managed quite a few cases of Cushing's disease with trilostane. And then, of course, you monitor them with what we call an ACTH stimulation test to make sure that we're not overshooting them or we're not harming the adrenal gland. And that should be done periodically. The downside to ACTH stimulation tests is they are a little more expensive. However, um, they're better for monitoring than the low-dose dexamethasone test, I feel. So that's Cushing's disease. So we kind of touched on that one in there. What is Addison's disease? Addison's disease is the exact opposite of Cushing's disease. So in this case... Um, their adrenal glands are not producing adequate levels of cortisol and corticosteroids as well as mineral corticoids. Um, so it could be caused by a disease in the pituitary gland or disease in the adrenal gland, okay? This is a very difficult disease to diagnose in general, okay? Um, the indicators in a general blood work usually tend to be hyponatremia and hyperkalemia, which are just big fancy words that says high potassium, low sodium. So if you see an animal um, that is kind of lethargic, kind of not right, you run blood work, the uh, sodium is low, the potassium is high, um, you could try a little steroid with them, give them a little prednisone, they perk up with that, very good chance you're dealing with an Addisonian case. Um, so how do you diagnose it? ACTH stimulation test. You do this test, you will see no normal production of cortisol. It's going to be low to start usually and never perk up, okay? Um, and that's what should happen. The ACTH should create, should stimulate it to produce. In this case, it doesn't. Most likely there you've got an Addisonian case, um, in which case you definitely need to start treating them. You have to supplement to them with their body is not producing an adequate level. So you usually put them on prednisone for the rest of their life and usually percortin V injections once every four to six weeks, depending on how they respond and how it lasts with them, to replace the mineral corticoids their body is not producing. Uh, animals can live with Cushing's disease. Animals can live with Addison's disease. It just has to be diagnosed properly and treated properly. All right, so those are some of the more common endocrine diseases that we see and a couple that are not so common um, but have very similar symptoms. And that's why blood work is so important and making sure that the diagnosis is correct. So that's going to be it for us today on For the Love of Pets. So I hope you learned something about endocrine diseases and things to watch out for and symptoms to watch for should your pet start to develop any of these diseases, which I hope in the future that it doesn't. But if it does, make sure you get it diagnosed right and treated properly. So we're going to be back next week with another uh, very interesting podcast. So come back next Wednesday and we'll be there. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot them over to me at my email. Again, it is for the love of pets podcast at gmail.com. If it's a good question, I will talk about it on air. If it's just a you know basic question, I can certainly shoot you an answer privately and we don't have to discuss it on air. But Feel free to ask any questions. As I always tell my clients, the only dumb question is the question not asked. So 
I hope you learned something today. I hope you enjoyed it. We will see you next week. And remember always to love your pets because they're always going to love you. Goodbye. Have a great day. And God bless.